I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can join our mailing list and access premium content at CapitalAllocators.com. My guest on today's Sponsor Insight is Brian Philpot from Ag America. Brian is the president and CEO of Ag America, the largest independent agriculture loan lender and servicer in the U.S. Brian invested for 24 years in timberland, agriculture, and real estate before turning to a sole focus on farmers. Ag America helps farmers thrive in good times and sleep well in tough times, having originated $2 billion in loans in the past two years. Our conversation covers Brian's background and path to focusing on the farmer. We discuss the opportunity set in farm lending and investing, inefficiencies in the market, and Ag America's investment process across sourcing, diligence, structuring, operations, and risk. We close by discussing the future of farming and Ag America's business to support the farmers making it happen. Please enjoy my conversation with Brian Philpot from Ag America. Brian, great to see you. Great to see you, Ted. Good to be with you today. How did you get into the farming business from way back when? Well, I'm a sixth generation Floridian. When I was born, that was in 1971. The small town we're located in, Lakeland, was larger than Orlando back then. So Florida was a lot different than (laughs) what most people think it's like today. So six generations in Florida, they were all in agriculture. So I grew up around it, my background in finance and and law, but I grew up around it. My parents had a farm. And what was your path from that early experience around it to it becoming a business? My father and an uncle of mine invested in timberland. So I kind of grew up around that. And when I got into college, I went to Florida State, got my finance degree, went to Florida to get my law degree. And while I was there, got my real estate degree and started buying timberland. So I bought 160 acres over west of Gainesville, and that was my first deal. After you do that, it's kind of like, do you want to go practice law and sit in an office, or do you want to you know, work outdoors? And that was sort of the first pull to embark on that. And how did it go from that initial track purchase to becoming what Ag America's become today? Well, I practiced law for about six months. I knew that wasn't going to work. <laughs> I started out with my longtime partner and one of my best friends. We started a company It's called Land South in the mid-90s. Up until the early 90s, the forest products companies owned their material. They owned real estate to grow timber for them to take to the mill and produce lumber or paper or whatever it was. The financial markets getting more sophisticated. And I think someone in the early 90s realized, why do we need these low appreciating assets that are really asset cash intensive. Why do we need these on the balance sheet? That's when TMOs were born, timber investment management organizations. There's a lot of pension money now that is managed in passive timber land, but back then that wasn't the case. And so during the 90s and early 2000s, there were 30 million acres that changed hands in the Southeast US. And so we were part of that. 
you know, you start up a company and you've got timberland changing hands. There was a lot of urbanization going on. So there were certainly farm properties that had a higher, higher and better uses. And that pulled us into it is the ability to make higher returns than what would have been available back in the 80s that we were able to sort of hit it at the perfect time. And, you know, it led to other verticals as well. Well, you can imagine in the early stages of timber becoming, call it from a real asset to a financial asset, that there could be a lot of inefficiencies along the way. What's an example of what that looked like when you were in the business trying to make money in the early stages of it? Well, the timber company owns 50,000 acres of land between Chattanooga and Knoxville. You know, that's not one contiguous piece of property. That's a hundred separate pieces, some located close to Chattanooga, some, you know, a little bit more remote. Forest Products Company has made a decision. We need to close by quarter in and move this asset. And they put it up for bid for a 60-day, 90-day closing. And, you know, it goes for a, a timberland type of price. But within that package, you have some core timberland, but you have some other pieces that have higher and better use value. And so, you know, the market was inefficient. So you have a large company that has an asset on the books and an asset that they value based off of its core agriculture use. And there's a lot of other uses to all of those parts. So that was some of what we were doing. Over time, We were exposed to a lot of different areas, geographies, a lot of different commodities, a lot of different types of uses of property. Over time, we built up a good core agricultural portfolio, core ag that we kept, some we sold off, but some we kept. And that higher and better use property allowed us to lower our basis in what we were holding. Among these different assets that you looked at uh, across different markets, how did you come to focusing on the farmer? Luck is so good, right? We sold out in our assets, a real estate in 2006. I think the last piece we sold was April of 2007. So we sold out before 07, 08 and uh, owned part of a, a community bank down here. And after the crisis, we had a mobile home finance company. We had a broadcast tower portfolio. We were buying debt out of other financial institutions that was that was farm debt. And like a lot of businesses during tough times that start trading in that debt market, started as a buying that debt and turned into a mainline lender. I think the key to it, though, was 97% of the farms in America are family owned. If you're going to be in this business, you cannot be a loan to own shop. I mean, I intuitively knew that. You know, you go into a rural area and you treat a farmer in that area bad, you'll never do business there again. And so, one, it's not good business. Two, it's just not good, period. And it's good business if I'm buying debt at a discount to be able to turn around and work out a deal with that farmer. I mean, that's the best resolution I can have. So, you know, that initial stage when we were buying a lot of that stuff, we turn around to the existing farmer and, hey, can you work out some sort of payment plan? Yeah, I can. We did, and that led to debt forgiveness. And now those clients, most of those clients are still clients of ours. A lot of loyalty in that. What did you see in that broad opportunity set of working with financing for farmers? I think you have to look at the changes that took place after 07, 08. 15 years ago, 40% of the loans in agriculture, real estate, were held by banks. We're down to about 30% now, and we continue to drop. 
if you have to generalize, it's community banks. About 50% of the market are the co-ops, the farm credit system. And that stayed solid. Um, That's stayed about the same number it has. But that co-op system, from a service standpoint, can be a bit stagnant. So there are between 60 and 70 of these co-ops scattered around the U.S. Those co-ops cannot lend outside of their geographic area. That creates a, a, a lending institution that is owned by the borrowers that does not have incentive to grow anymore. It just is stagnant. And so if you think about a farmer, farmers there in, a, in a rural America, majority of farmers don't have a college degree. They're smart people, very industrious, but they don't have finance and accounting background. So their lender in a lot of cases is their financial counselor. And so they're turning around to a co-op or a community bank with limited lending limits, and that's not enough of a solution. So it was pretty obvious to us early on that there could be something better that not only provided quick service, but provided some value in terms of the advice you give and a more sophisticated product offering. I would say that finance what we've seen, uh, the evolution of finance in the last 20, 30 years, ha- we've not kept pace in the agricultural arena. What did you see as the opportunity to develop a business at scale into this space? Technologies allowed the world to get closer, has made the world smaller. And I think we saw that that would allow us to provide service to a, a wider group of people. I think farmer behavior is such that you don't have to be in Sunday school with the part the, the farmer every weekend to do business with them. They're more willing to do remote business. That's more the norm now. But if you're building an organization that's investing or lending into agriculture, you're going to be able to offer a a better portfolio to your investors, and you're going to be able to ultimately offer a better rate to the farmer if you're more diverse. And so you need geographic and commodity diversification. And so I look at the the landscape, all of the competitors are small regional lenders, right? If you're a community bank or you're a a co-op in that area, imagine what a a weather event does to your, your book. And it's not that it blows up, it just makes it where it's more intensive in terms of playing defense, right? Having to meet with clients, make sure they're in a good spot and not able to, as an organization, attack the market and, and, and innovate. And so for us, I mean, since our inception, all of our concentration levels have continued to drop, whether it's regions, whether it's commodities or whatever. And that's led to a healthier portfolio and the metrics bear that out. So what is Ag America today? We are a lending company and an investment company specializing in agriculture. On the lending side, our client is the farmer, right? We have a a retail lending group, a private client group, and an institutional lending group. And the idea is for us to be able to create financial solutions for on the debt side for farmers to help them grow and sustain and, and the like. On the investment side, the goal is for us to provide a return for our investors by giving them a way to to get in the agricultural market. It's hard to do. And so the idea is for us to be able to provide a way to have credit exposure and to have equity exposure through the capital stack with these farmers that we're helping out to bridge between the two. We're one of the only lenders across the lower 48 
and the only mortgage REIT in America that it's in agriculture. As you approach the space, I'd love to break down the investment process from where you started. So how did you start sourcing these opportunities? This is going to sound crazy. In 2007, we bought a theme park out of bankruptcy, the former Cypress Gardens here in Florida. It's now the home of Legoland, Florida. That was the first time I was exposed to a major marketing operation. So that park we bought, we had a management team in there. But if you can imagine a large theme park in Florida, the marketing apparatus was pretty significant. And marketing in 2007 was radio and newspapers. By 2010, it was digital and direct mail. And so we brought that model in our infancy here with Ag America over digital and direct mail and storytelling, right? We want our advertising to be almost like art. We want it to evoke an emotion. And so we started direct mail. We started digital. That drove a lot of demand in 2011, 2012. More demand than we had personnel to process loans, which is a good problem. It's been 13, 14 years since we started. That's led to us having brand recognition now. So we're not advertising to get loans. We're advertising just to keep the, the name out there. Majority of our loan flow now comes from referrals from our existing clients, which is the best advertising you can get. So when an opportunity comes in, how do you do the work? Our deal team is made up of a client loan officer, a loan operations manager, and a credit analyst. They like a commercial loan, three years tax returns and a balance sheet, and they analyze historical and put a pro forma together. Great thing about agriculture is we have great data. And so you can look at what a farmer has done the last three years and compare that to what the average farmer has done in that county. We can get we can get granular USA data and compare them. Are they a good grower compared to the norm or are they are less than? And then pro forma that out and make a credit decision. But and we've got a probability default model. The ratios go into the machine and it uh, gives us a probability default. We have pricing bands based off of that and uh, the deal's negotiated. And then, of course, it goes through the appraisal title process and close and, and all of that. But it's commercial lending is what we're doing. When you look at the unit economics of a farm, what is it that makes it attractive? As a lender, you have to split the conversation between the cash flow economics of the enterprise from the asset. The real estate asset, whether we own the the asset on our equity side or we're, we're lending and taking a first position mortgage, agriculture real estate is so stable. It has one third the volatility of commercial real estate over a long, long period. We generally are between 10 and 15% of real estate debt to real estate asset value in farmland. And so we don't have credit bubbles has a 97% correlation with inflation. So last year, agricultural real estate did really well. But even when we come off of inflationary time periods, it's there's a smoothing. It's not a, it's not a crash, a, a major pop in terms of that value. So it's a really good asset to lend on. That's your loss given default. That's what protects you. We saw a period in the 80s, back the farm aid days, and then back during the depression where we saw values drop you know, in the 20, 25% range, but no huge crashes. 
On the income side, as we're lending and we're a commercial lender, these are commercial loans, we have to look at repayment. It can vary. I always tell people, if you're going to be in the agricultural lending business, you have to realize that debt is a killer. Farmers just cannot have a lot of debt. Not only looking at LTVs, but the debt assets have to be within control because they have huge margins in good years, but then you'll have years where where it's lean and they need to have they have the ability to tap into more working capital or have cash on hand to take care of that. But your margins, these are 15 to 40 percent margin businesses. So they're, they're good businesses. How do you balance the importance of the asset compared to the operator or the farmer? The asset's key because it's the producer of the cash flow. You need to make sure that it's a A or a B quality farm. A and B quality farms are going to hold their value even when times get a little bit tighter. It's important in that respect. I think when you're investing into the equity investing side of things, it becomes more important there because you want to have that A quality in the business. We call it dirt, right? The A quality dirt always holds value and becomes more pronounced in its value with the time as we move forward over the next 30 years, we think. When you are talking to a farmer about lending to them, what's the pitch you give when you see their eyes light up and you know, okay, we're going to get this deal? One of the big things that I've learned over the years is that it takes a lot of listening with the farmer. We're not dictating a product. We need to listen to them on their goals because there is a farmer life cycle. There's the farmer that's established that's farming that isn't necessarily growing. You know, there's a product for that. There's the farmer that's growing, expanding, and has big dreams and all of that. And then there's the farmer that's at the end. And we have about half of our farmers in our retirement age, the big issue. For them, it's not just what am I going to do the next however many years, but what's the legacy of this? My kids aren't coming back, my grandkids. It's helping them think about the future of that farm. And so it's great when you strike a deal and you sign on the dotted line. But I think what I'm getting at is this is a big relationship business. And when you get them to agree to the deal, they're agreeing to be in relationship with you. We'll get that loan done, but we're going to be changing that loan in two, three years, right? They're going to be buying something else or they're going to be otherwise needing something else out of us. And so that's what you're agreeing to is a relationship. And To get back to the beginning of this conversation, which is why did I get into this? I think that's probably the biggest reason is I've been in other areas of business that are more transactional and it can sound a little hokey being in the relationship oriented business. Yeah, it's more rewarding, but also saves a heck of a lot of time when you're not retrading and there's a lot more trust built up. When you're striking a deal, what's important when you're thinking about the deal terms? On a credit deal, You want to make sure that the loan terms are such that the farmer has flexibility. Last thing we want to do is make a loan that straight jackets a farmer. That doesn't mean you don't put covenants in the loan or whatever, but you want to make sure that the payment frequency, you want to make sure that the interest rate, you even, you know, you shock it and all of that. You want to make sure that that farmer is going to be able to, you know, survive a weather event or drop in prices and that the stress from that is not going to put them in a situation where they're worse off. And so it's a balance, right? And this business we're in in terms of loaning to farmers is not short-term bridge loans. If you're looking to loan off your reputation and also to do the right thing by the farmer, it's just hard to do. So that's one thing. Now on the equity side, we do not invest direct in a farm like 
others out there and just lease it out. We bring in hundreds of qualified leads a month. And a lot of the business that comes through this door are farmers that maybe they do have a higher debt to assets. And because this business doesn't lend itself to a lot of high yield debt, the answer you jump straight from is it's a loan with some equity. And so we become their partner. And so when we're doing that, is it a good operator? What's their track record? Do we see this farmer as being a long-term a good bet. So there's a lot of other factors that get into that. If you're making a loan, you could imagine you're loaning to a specific asset. You just want the farmer to operate that asset, generate cash flow. You can model that out. Equity, you think of growth. What does it look like when a farmer goes from whatever their plot of land to expansion mode? That's farming today. So let's break that down. Last 10 years, we've lost several hundred thousand farms in America. And there's two farm categories that are expanding and everything else is shrinking. Farms 50 acres and smaller, that category is is increasing. And farms 2,000 acres and more is increasing. 50 acres and smaller, that's that's the hippie farm. That's That's the fun farm. That's all of your COVID people that decided to move outside of town and get a few cows or grow something and take it to the farmer's market. And we finance that and it's fantastic. And I love, I love it that people are doing that, but everybody else in farming is being squeezed out. And it's because of the technology required because of with sustainability, a lot of the the techniques require longer payback. And so you have to have scale in order to survive. And we're seeing a, a, a lot of consolidation in that this space. And so what does it look like? It, it's, it's not, as much, hey, I'm a farmer and I'm buying 80 acres next to me. It's I'm a decent sized farmer and I'm doubling the size of my farm in one transaction. And so with a lot of farmers that can be done, they've paid down their debt. They can they can put up the current farm and finance that. But with a number of others, it's, you know, in order to have working capital, they need a partner. That's a big change in agriculture. 97% of the farms are family owned. There's really not a lot of institutional coverage in agriculture, like in the other sectors of real estate, especially for a $3 trillion real estate market. Where do the scale efficiencies come into play when a farmer is expanding you know, into that larger segment? Precision agriculture is a big one. You know, Your irrigation systems now, they rely, rely on drone technology. They rely on, you know, we're relying on computers. It's, uh, we want to We want to conserve water and we want to make sure that we want to control costs in terms of fertilizer delivery and and that sort of thing. And so as you invest in more of that technology, right, it's a huge fixed cost. You need to be able to average that out over a lot more acres. The other big area is sustainability and cover crops and no-till. You'll hear that. And a lot of farmers are already doing no-till. They're not Turn, churning up the soil when they, they go to sow uh, the seeds in, that can have a not so negative impact on your yields. Cover crops cost money to plant when the farm is not producing, but that takes you know a number of years for the improvements in the soil to take place where you get gains in yields. And so both the precision ag with the fits cross and the cover crops and no-till practices before you see the return on that can take three to five years. And to survive, farmers are having to do that. They've just got to get bigger. Kind of curious what happens when a loan isn't working out. 
especially in the smaller one, because on the one hand, right, it's your commercial, it's a lending officer. On the other hand, there's just supporting what needs to be done for the, the whole ecosystem. How do you work through those types of challenges? You work with them. I mean, think about it. If you are a farmer, and most of these farmers, it's multi-generational. So if the farm's been in your family for three or four generations and you have equity in that asset, you're not going to lose it. They're going to do everything they can. They stress over it a lot more than, than we do. And so I think the important thing is for us as a lender to have empathy and to help be, be proactive in coming up with solutions. And so unlike a lot of lenders in this space, we talk to each of our clients every three months. You know, it's good business. It's, it's good to re- have that relationship, but it's also important for us to know that there's a problem before there's a payment issue. And so that allows us to be proactive. You know, the farmer, hey, I took my cows through and they didn't get the right price. And I I think I'm going to run them back through in two months, but I might be a little late. Well, we can work with that. That's not a big deal. If it's a situation, though, where for whatever reason, the debt's gotten to be too big and and there's challenges, you've got to give them some time to sell off the the back 80. And it's remarkable. A lot of these farmers, especially, you know, the older generation, when they made money, they'd buy more farmland. And when they were losing money, they'd sell some farmland or they'd borrow more money and then pay off more money, pay off you know, the debt. And so having that mentality when you go into it, it prevents you from, you know, hey, where's my payment and, and, and bowing up and creating a situation where there's not trust. We found that rarely does a does a late pay go beyond 60 days? A lot of times it's just a matter of working with them. And for us, I mean, we've done thousands upon thousands of transactions, taken back three properties REO. I haven't lost money on a loan, knock on wood, but three loans REO, two of them went to federal prison for financial fraud on other parties. And one of them, unfortunately, he'd, he'd inherited it and just didn't have the fortitude to, to do what he needed to do. What are the biggest risks in the investments that you make? The biggest risk would be operational risk. Either if you're leasing out the property, the tenant ends up being not so good. Or if you partnered with a farmer, that they end up not being a good producer. And so there's a lot of due diligence required there. After that, it's season specific, right? So it's a weather event or it is going to be some major drop in commodity prices. Both of those, though, great thing in agriculture is we've got a great crop insurance system here in the U.S. that has really grown and been developed the last 30 years since the 80s. And that program covers you for major drops in commodity prices, but more importantly, for weather events. And so there is a floor in terms of your investment in those situations. And what's the persistence of performance of a farmer? So as you do your due diligence, as you said earlier, you're looking at the data, you're looking at how they have performed. How consistent is that with your experience once you've made a loan or once you've made an equity investment? Very consistent. Our probability default model, we track. You know, if our model says less than half a percent will default in this particular bucket, we're dead on with it. So we're pretty consistent with that. Our team's done a remarkable job there. So in the early years, were you less successful as you were like building up the data? You're just doing whatever you can. You know, the thing though, that in coming from the investment side intuitively, I knew that if I kept my 
weighted average loan to value in that range, I was going to be okay. I mean, you can't predict when a weather event's going to happen. And I wasn't a mind reader at that point, pick out, is this guy the, the, a great grower? I knew if we they had equity in it and we had that loss had taken care of, we'd be okay. As you build scale, you've got to identify it just for efficiency, right? You don't want to have a bunch of special asset deals you're just having to manage. How do you think about liquidity? The agriculture market, as long as I've been around it, is pretty liquid. You think, oh, it's rural America. There's not buyers. But a good parcel of land, a farmer wants to sell it, it rarely gets to a realtor. A lot of times it's being sold to the farmer next door and they get, they, they know someone that's going to buy it. So first off, the market's more liquid than people might realize and has been that way. You know, as we think about equity investing, we're talking about putting investment capital alongside the winner's. We have a lease option program. That's a situation where a farmer needs to do a higher LTV loan. It's pretty expensive for them to be able to, to tap into MES debt, as I mentioned earlier, and it's self-defeating. We're better off buying that property and letting them pay us a smaller down payment for an option to buy it later and four-year, five-year period. And as they're improving that property, the value of it's going up. And they know that they're building value in that property by doing that. And for us, being a lender as well, they're making our regular lease payment over three, four years. We'll finance them out. So that's the exit. We take it out on the other side. And it's a win-win for everybody. You've got this marketplace that you've been in for a while, where, as you mentioned, there's co-ops, there's banks, there's not a lot of institutional capital. And yet the characteristics sound great, right? They're pretty stable assets, inflation-protected What's the nature of your competition? There are institutional investment groups in this space that do a good job. Traditionally, I've mentioned that the way they do that is buy a farm and then lease it out or buy a farm and hire the management to farm it. And that can work out. I think the challenge, though, is that it's been a scale problem for a lot of folks in that it's hard to get labor. It's hard to get a high quality manager in farming that doesn't already own a farm. Your best farmers own their own farm, own their own asset. And so you've got a labor problem. And the, but then I also hit on the other piece, which is sustainable farming. If you're a farmer and you're leasing a farm, that's a short-term lease. I mean, all of these leases, it may be a 10-year lease, but there's a 90-day eviction clause in there in case the landlord wants to sell. And so it doesn't induce the, the farmer into taking more sustainable practices that may take a lot, have a longer payback and also precision ag, which is, is more efficient as well. And so you look at the landscape and it's not analogous to TMOs as we were talking about earlier. A TMO, you can buy a, you can buy a big timber track, the trees grow, and you can have a fiber agreement with the local forest products company. Here, you buy a farm, the value in the production is in the farmer and the practices they have. And so we haven't quite figured out, I mean, I say we, the, the industry has not quite figured out what the next evolution of this looks like. And we're a pro-farmer needs to own the farm company. And as we think about capital, we need to be thinking about ways that the farmer can have benefit from the improvements that they put into that, whether they own it outright or they're aligned otherwise with the capital that is. You mentioned at the onset there have been 700,000 acres no longer farmed you know, over this period of time. What's driving that change? Urbanization. Since 1950, 
we've dropped the number of acres in America in farmland by about 30%. So there's this combination of shrinking supply. You also mentioned that a bunch of the farmers you work with are retirement age. You've got a demographic issue. What does that imply about as you look out at things like food sourcing in the country over the next five or 10 years? The UN says that we need to produce 50% more food worldwide over the next 30 years with population growing. I mean, you think about the other areas that produce a lot of food. Uh, You've got the Ukraine. You have South America that's having drought. Australia has drought issues. And as we we enter into an era of a warmer planet, American farmland, especially east of the Rockies, is about as good as it gets. We have multiple directions that, that winds bring you know, moisture to the area, which is more drought resistant in terms of climate change. And we have more navigable waterways than the the world, rest of the world combined. And so we have the ability to move it around. So I think America as a source of food, uh, we need it right for ourselves. But I think in terms of world food scarcity, we should play a large role in that. And I think that that's something we need to be thinking about. It's urbanization. There's a lot of pressure, you know, with solar solar farms. Now we've been seeing a lot of that. Solar farms have been been going up on high quality farmlands. So there's a lot of things going on out there that are reducing the amount of, of farmland we have. And you know, I think that's something that hopefully is paid more attention to, you know, as we move forward. As you're growing alongside of this need the opportunity set, what are the bottlenecks that you see within your organization to continue to expand your efforts? Talent. We have a syndication desk, capital markets desk. We do some pretty neat things on the financial structuring side, but also we do business in rural America. And so some hot to trot person comes out of MBA school, you know, they don't want to go work in rural America. They don't necessarily have to with us. We try to work around that. But the ability to find high-end motivated talent that wants to interface with the farmer is probably the number one challenge. Yeah, there's technology, there's we're a high high growth company, there's all of that, but the big one is talent. And I know I know everybody's dealing with that now, but it's been one that when I look across the landscape at our competitors, there's not a lot of talent for us to pull out of those areas with the way we think about it. How have you gone about trying to build up homegrown talent then? People that are smart, motivated from the financial and business sector and make them passionate about the farmer. We have people that have grown up in rural America and grown up around ag and understand it. And our business development team is full of people that are agriculture to the core, but Ultimately, we want to be a sophisticated finance company. In order to do that, we have to have sophisticated financial professionals. We've got two clients. We have the farmer that produces our food supply in rural America, and they need us. And we have sophisticated investors. So it's a pretty neat area and mission to have. It's just working to, to find, locate those people that, that fit those two things. What do you want Ag America to look like over the next couple of years? Ag America is becoming a, for lack of a better term, a merchant bank in this space. We are a conduit between the farmer and the financial markets and the institutional market in agriculture. And as we continue to fill out the team in those roles, 
we want to be able to solve those problems and, and, and be that. And, you know, that's a lofty goal. There's a lot of interest in agriculture and U.S. agriculture. But for us, that's going to require us to create more products for the, the investor environment, both equity and credit. And it also is going to require us to deepen our relationships with farmers. And, you know, I, I think, I mean, ultimately, the more investors that we can bring into this market ultimately are going to be able to solve a lot of these problems and lower the cost of capital and all of that. And that's a good thing. Up to now, it's been geography that's been the issue. And, and I think we've closed that gap. Brian, I can't let you go without asking a couple of closing questions. So what is your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? Reading and walking in the woods. Those are my two. I like walking with my dog, but you know, this I've always been an outdoor guy and I'm a tree hugger who is a capitalist. I like to make money too, but I, I like the outdoors and, and nature. And I think that's probably be the top of my list. What type of investment do you gravitate to like a moth to the flame? The large complicated deal where the buyer, the borrower, whoever, they need us to help untangle that that web. Those have always been the case. So I bought mitigation banks out of bankruptcy. We put together unitranche deals that get pretty complicated to to help farmers, you know, expand the operation. Anything that's that's in that realm, those are pretty rewarding and love to jump in and solve. What's your biggest investment pet peeve? Being retraded when it gets transactional, <laughs> and you know, you know they agreed to the deal, and you knew know that they plan when they agreed to the deal that they're going to retrade you, and it's just like, man, you're just wasting my time. Which two people have had the biggest impact on your professional life? My friend Rob Harper, who I started Land South with, we grew up together as business people, and so we pushed each other and learned together and solved a lot of things together. We fed off each other and learned from each other there. So that was, we were in school together, sort of the answer there. The other one uh, would be George Jenkins. George was the founder of Public Supermarkets. And I am I grew up here in Lakeland where Publix is, was founded and the corporate headquarters are located. And um, I had the opportunity to know him. And if you've ever been in a Publix, culture is everything there. The employees, you know, make sure that company has outlived him and continues to be at the top of the list in terms of standards and grocery stores. So those would be my two. What was the most challenging moment in your career? In 2005, I was finally diagnosed with Lyme disease and a co-infection. Brucellosis was the name of it. And I had had both of those for about two and a half years. And I'm not trying to be dramatic, but I had probably been slowly dying for about two and a half years and finally got to the point where I couldn't work. And an infectious disease doctor figured it out at the University of South Florida. So I'm on intravenous. I, I'm taking three antibiotics for 18 months. And for a year, I couldn't go to the office. So you go from being healthy and in your 30s and trying to conquer the world to now you can't go to the office and you really have no stamina and all of that. So forced me to prioritize. It forced me to understand what's important in life and reprioritize life and family and all of that. I think it made me an effective, more effective business person and leader in terms of how to delegate and how to provide leadership in a more impactful way. So I wouldn't be here if I hadn't gone through that experience, but it was a stinker. That was a tough year and a half. <laughs> yeah. 
What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you? Average isn't good enough. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think they instilled with me, a, you know, uh, do it excellent or don't do it at all. All right, Brian, I got one more for you. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in life? Yeah, I wish I would have listened had I given myself this advice, but it's the journey. It's not the destination, right? And I know that people talk about that, but really that was one of those lessons for us high achievers, the type A's of the world. You know, we always have some goal or some idea of success. And I like your podcast tagline about compounding knowledge. And for me, that's it. We become better people the more we know and we make better decisions the more we know. And I mean, that's enough reward in itself. And um, I wish I would have probably known that earlier. I gained a lot of knowledge, but I think a lot of us at a young age were ready to conquer the world and check the box. Yeah. Well, Brian, thanks so much for sharing this story. It's uh, amazing what you're doing, making investments and helping the farming community along the way. Thank you, Ted. Appreciate the time. Thanks for listening to this Sponsored Insight. Sponsored episodes are paid opportunities for another 12 managers a year to appear on the podcast. If you're interested in telling your story in front of the largest audience of investors in the industry, please email us at team at capitalallocators.com to apply for one of the slots. 